Good morning. It's a great privilege to get to be here with you this morning. Thank you, Todd, very much for inviting me and allowing me to share your Sunday with you. Uh, I just coming in from uh, from Washington D.C. a couple days ago uh, to Southern California, and I've this is my first time here at Cornerstone Church. And the truth is, I of course have no idea where each one of you might be in your own journey of faith this morning. I personally feel like I've been trying to follow Jesus for a long time. I grew up here in California, uh, came to know Christ as a little kid in the church, and have really been quite earnestly trying to follow Jesus. But, you know, you do this for a while, and then there's a, a challenging question that has begun to occur to me over time, and that's this. Are Jesus and I really interested in the same things? Because I know what I'm interested in, right? And I could make a list of all those things, and you could probably make all of your lists, right? So let's say we made all those lists, but what if we just set all those lists aside for a moment? And what if we asked from first principles, but what is God passionate about? What is What is it that makes Jesus' heart really beat fast? What is God passionate about? This morning I'd like to spend just a few minutes talking about two of the more unfamiliar passions of God. And those are simply first God's passion for the world and then God's passion for justice. Now first God's passion for the world. We know from the Bible that God loves the world. Right? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God loves the world, which means he loves all these gajillions of people, right? Spread out over all these confusing continents and cultures. This is what God loves, the world. Now, by contrast, what do I love? What am I passionate about? Well, to tell you the truth, every single day, I am totally passionate about Me. I love me. I'm fascinated by me every single day. I don't like wake up in the morning and have to remind myself to think of me. It just seems to come really naturally. Now, my pastor tells me this is more narrow than I should be, and so I'm trying to open my heart out a little bit. and, And every once in a while, I will really find my heart beginning to grow. And I will find myself extending love and compassion to all the people in the universe who are in my immediate family. (laughs) And that's a pretty good day in my household, actually, where I'll extend more love and compassion to my wife and four kids than I extend to myself. And they usually circle that day on the calendar and pray it happens again next year, maybe, and... (laughs) And then maybe I'll have, I don't know, some larger spiritual experience at church and I will really start to find my heart beginning to grow and I will start to extend love and compassion to all the people in the universe that I like and who like me and who are like me. And this becomes then my world of passion and energy and concern and interest. It's this little shriveled world of me and mine. Now, I think Jesus finds this pretty natural. It's pretty understandable. But I'm not sure that everything that's natural and understandable is necessarily godly. 
So at least we who are gathered here this morning, and as Jared said, here to really see ourselves maybe shaped to share God's heart. Maybe we need to begin to, I need to begin to allow myself to share something of his heart for this larger world. You know, this came home to me actually in quite a powerful way many years ago now. Do you remember in 1994, I actually uh, was living in Washington, D.C. Uh, my wife and I and kids, I was serving as a, a prosecutor with the U.S. Department of Justice. And in 94, I was sent to this little country in the middle of Africa that I had really never heard of called Rwanda. You might remember in 1994, there was this horrific genocide that broke out in this country. And if you get this, about 800,000 people were murdered in about eight weeks' time. That's like having uh, 9-11 happen in the United States three times a day, every day, for eight solid weeks. And after all the killing was over, the international community wanted to try to bring the perpetrators to justice. And so I was sent over to be the director of the UN's genocide investigation in Rwanda. And all murder investigations just begin with where the bodies are. And most of the bodies were in churches. Why is that? Because the Tutsis ran to the churches for protection. And then their Hutu neighbors would just wade into them and just hack them all to death with machetes. And so there's this horrible task of having to gather the evidence against the leaders of the genocide. And, and the hardest part for me, honestly, wasn't sorting through thousands and thousands of corpses, which I did have to do. The worst part of it was having to interview the survivors, and especially the little kids who had survived these massacres. And I remember one time I had to interview a little eight-year-old girl who had survived one of these massacres. And she had actually lay amongst the dead in one of these churches for two and a half days. And I remember I was sitting across from her at this little table, and I'm trying to get her story out of her. And, and the first thing you would have noticed about her was the first thing I noticed, which was really just how beautiful she was. She had these eyes that just sparkled. And then she'd say something to make herself laugh, and then these white teeth would just burst across her face. And she was gorgeous. And I remember looking into the face of this little eight-year-old girl when it suddenly dawned on me in a way that I had never thought of before, that the maker of the entire universe specifically intended that this one little eight-year-old Rwandan girl should exist. And not only that, but he intended that she should exist to be with him forever. And he wanted this particular little Rwandan girl to be with him forever so badly that he was willing to give up his own son to be tortured and murdered to make sure that this little girl would be with him forever. And suddenly I was just blown away by the cosmic significance of this one little Rwandan girl. But I also knew from the pink machete scars across the back of her head and her neck that she was just about, a miller of, just about a millimeter of a machete blow from being part of just that huge pile of corpses we had cleaned up inside the church. And so then it occurred to me that 800,000 other Rwandans who were just as precious to God as this little girl, they could all just drop off the face of the earth, right? And for me as an American Christian, it just wouldn't affect my day at all. 
And suddenly I could just sense that there was a significant difference between the way Jesus was regarding the world and the way I was regarding the world. And frankly, I didn't want to be that far away from what really mattered to him. And so it's been a journey now for me to try to open up the borders of my heart, to try to share something of his love and passion and interest in the world. But you know, it's been interesting as I try to do that and as we try to do that, maybe to to step into that world and share something of the, the love of God, what do you imagine is probably the most difficult thing for people in our world to believe about the Christian faith? I think it's simply the idea that God is good because they're in so much pain. You know, there's about 20,000 kids today in our world who will die just because their parents can't get them enough food. And there'll be 20,000 again tomorrow and 20,000 the next time. And if you think about that, like, how are they supposed to believe that God is good? Or what about the 1.5 billion people who have no access to medical care? Right? No access. That means they're not, like, arguing about, well, will I get to choose my doctor under my medical plan? It's like... You don't get a doctor. And when they're hurting and suffering, and how are they supposed to somehow find it believable that God is good? Or what about the hundreds of thousands of children who will wake up this morning on the streets of the big urban centers around the world just alone and abandoned? How are they supposed to somehow find it believable that God is so good? If you think about it, what is God's plan for making it believable that he is good for those who are hurting so much in our world? What's his plan? Well, it turns out the answer from the Bible is a little surprising because it turns out that we're the plan and that God doesn't have another plan. Do you remember what Jesus says to his Followers, to us, his disciples in Matthew chapter 5, he says to us, You are the light of the world. Let your light so shine among men that they will see your good works and then they will give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I love this because you'll notice that Jesus doesn't say, You might be the light of the world or you could be the light of the world. Or I sure hope you turn out to be the light of the world. Jesus says to us, you're it. This is why the Apostle Paul says one of the most amazing things in all of Scripture, if you think about it. In 2 Corinthians 5.20, he says, God is making his appeal to the world through us. And so for 2,000 years, Christians have been trying to make it believable that God is good, especially to those who are hurting and in pain, and by going to them and showing them the love of God. And so if there's people in our world who are suffering because they've never heard that God loves them and offers forgiveness and eternal life, we're the ones who actually get to go and share that story with them. And if other people are suffering because they don't have food today, well, for heaven's sakes, we can help them with that. And if others are suffering because they don't have doctors or medicine, then we can help share some of ours. And if others are suffering because they don't have shelter, then we can help them with homes. And when we do these things, 
then they see us, the body of Christ, actually show up. And it becomes believable to them that God is good. And I know from reputation that this is a church where the community has come to know the love of God. It's become believable to hurting people because of the way he's worked through you. But you know, there's another category of people in our world who are suffering. And it's interesting if you think about it because they're not suffering because they haven't heard the gospel or because they don't have food or because they don't have doctors or because they don't have housing. These are the people who are suffering in our world. Why? Because of the intentional oppression and abuse of other people. These are the victims of injustice in our world. Now you might ask, okay, but what is injustice anyways? Because that's a pretty useless word in America, right? I mean, it means everything and it means nothing. And, and honestly, as an American, I pretty much feel like I'm a victim of injustice like all day, every day, right? <laughs> like the other day I'm at the, at the grocery store and um, your, your grocery store has uh, express lanes, right? One or two of these or maybe more. And it's like I'm always in the express lane. And so the other day I'm there in the express lane and I, you know, I got my cart. And, of course, there's rules to any express lane, right? And so in my, it's like uh, maximum 10 items only. Big sign, 10 items only. So I'm there, got my shopping cart, ready to express, got my 10 items. Guy in front of me. I kid you not. 13 items. <laughs> He's totally jamming up the express lane, right? And I'm getting, I'm getting so frustrated. He's totally breaking the law. You know, when I'm a lawyer, and I'm going to sue this guy, and I could do that. And I, I'm just like, oh, man. Uh, well, just so you know, when the Bible talks about injustice, this is not what it's talking about. <laughs> injustice in the Bible is actually a particular kind of sin. Injustice is about the abuse of power. The abuse of power to take from other people the good things that God intended for them. Their life, their liberty, their dignity, the fruit of their love and their labor. And when someone who is stronger just rips those things away because they can, God calls this a sin, the sin of injustice. This is why in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. But on the side of the oppressor was power. But what does this look like in our world today? You know, in 1997, I left my job at the Department of Justice, and I actually went to work for a Christian ministry called International Justice Mission. IJM, and we're a collection of Christian lawyers and criminal investigators and social workers, and we now have offices all around the world, and we take on cases of brutal, violent abuse and injustice, and now have a pretty good idea of what this looks like in our world. And I'll never forget meeting a little boy in India named Kumar. Kumar grew up in a poor rural area, and about the age of five, he was orphaned. And then by the age of eight, he found himself sold into a brick factory as a slave where he works 
about 14 hours a day just making and carrying bricks. He's been there for years, and he will spend his entire lifetime as a slave inside this brick factory. There's about 70 other slaves inside the facility, and if anybody tries to run away, they are chased down by the owner and his henchmen, and they drag him back, and they just beat him in front of the others. Even when Kumar's too sick to work, the owner will just come by and just kick him in the head and send him right back to work. You know, experts tell us that there are somewhere between 10 and 15 million children held illegally in slavery in India alone. My colleagues and I have met thousands of them by name. I took my twin girls when they were 13 to India just so they could see what a child slave looks like in our day. And you have to ask, well, how today is Kumar and all these other millions of children who don't get to go to school, they don't get to play, but work as slaves, how are they somehow supposed to think it's believable that God is somehow so good? Or what about Alina? I met her in the Philippines. She was an 11-year-old girl living in a rural area, a rural town. Um, and she was horrifically assaulted, sexually assaulted, by a man in her town. And the thing that made it so horrible is that it turns out he was the chief of police in her town. Someone who was given power to protect people, but instead he was abusing a little girl like Alina. And so there she sits in like total despair and total sense of abandonment and horror because the one who was supposed to protect her is actually the one abusing her. You know, there's an epidemic of sexual violence against little girls in the developing world. In communities that we work in, about 40% of girls are victims of rape or attempted rape by the age of 14, 40%. And how today is Alina supposed to somehow believe that God is good? Or what about Jyoti, a 16-year-old uh, girl I met in India? She was also living in a, a poor rural district, and one day some women came to her and they said, Hey, Jyoti, why don't you come with us to the city of Mumbai? which is what we used to call Bombay, and we can get you a job there, and you can make some money and send it home to your family. And so she goes with these ladies, but on the way there, they gave her some tea that was drugged, and she fell unconscious. And they actually took her to the red light district, and they sold her into a brothel for about $250. And then she's stuffed into this underground room underneath the brothel and just beaten for three days with plastic pipes and electrical cords and metal rods, until she's forced to provide services to the customers there. Jyoti has to service between 20 and 30 men a day, seven days a week, never let outside of that brothel. And UNICEF tells us that there's about a million children every year taken into forced prostitution around our world. So how is Jyoti, how are all these other girls somehow supposed to find it believable that God is good? In fact, how does God regard all of this suffering in our world today? Well, I don't know about you, but I was interested when Jared was reading Psalm 10 because it's such a powerful psalm because it, it sets out actually how God thinks about abuse and oppression. It's a great psalm because it starts with this really hard question. It's like, why, O oh Lord, do you stand far off? In other words, it's asking like, where in the world are you, God? But listen to the affirmation of faith at the very end, which you would have heard in verses 17 and 18. Listen to this. 
O Lord, you will hear the desire of the meek. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice for the orphan and the oppressed so that those from earth may strike terror no more. If you read the Bible, what is absolutely clear is that God hates this kind of abuse and he wants it to stop. Psalm 35.10 puts it this way. It says, O Lord, who is like you? You deliver the weak from those too strong for them. You deliver the weak and needy from those who would despoil them. See, this is the good news of our scripture. We've actually written a little book. Excuse me, I forgot this little book. It's called Good News About Injustice. And people ask, well, what's the good news about injustice? The good news is God is against it. And it turns out that this actually matters. But, you know, this has always just raised another question in my mind, which is, well, that's great, God, that you're against all this injustice and that you want to bring rescue and deliverance and make it stop. But what's your plan for actually doing that? Once again, the answer from the Bible is a little surprising because it turns out that we're the plan and that God doesn't have another plan. Remember what it says in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. It says, he has told you, O man, O woman, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Isaiah 117 says, seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. For those of us who take the Bible seriously, there can be no doubt that God has given to us the work of justice in the world. But notice when we find out that we're the plan for justice, it's not like we're standing up and cheering like, wow, great idea, God. I'm glad you saw what we were capable of. It's mostly like, really? Like, we're just brainstorming here, God, and like, there's no bad ideas, but this is a bad idea. We can just feel so powerless, right? We can just feel bolted to our chairs with despair. Who are we to do this? Well, in these moments, I think it's very powerful to remember this little story from the Gospels when the disciples were feeling exactly the same way. Do you remember the story of the feeding of the 5,000? And do you remember how this story actually begins? People are getting hungry because they've been out away from their homes for a very long time listening to Jesus teach. And the disciples have a brilliant idea. They go to Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, why don't you send everybody home so they can get themselves fed? Jesus doesn't want to miss out on the fun of this situation. And so he says, oh, no, guys, you feed them. And this is where you just got to love the disciples because they're always just so patient to explain to Jesus what he clearly doesn't understand about the situation, right? (laughs) And they say, oh, Jesus, we would love to do that. (laughs) But there's 5,000 hungry people. And it would take a half year's wages to be able to feed them all. And honestly, we just don't have that kind of cash on us today. So back to you, Jesus. See what happened? Jesus was really clear about what he was asking them to do, right? Feed them. But they looked at the magnitude of the need, and they looked at their own resources, and they thought, well, this really can't have anything to do with us. 
So what does Jesus say? He simply says, well, what do you have? Well, they don't have nothing, so they have to present what they do have, which is what? Remember, it's the little boy with the sack lunch that his mom had packed for him, right? To go hear Jesus. And it has five loaves and two fish in it. And this is presented as the corporate resources that are going to meet the massive need. And this is where the apostle Andrew enters the conversation because, I don't know, he's sort of the smarter disciple and he's got a graduate degree in public policy or something from UCLA, I don't know. And, <laughs> and he looks at the five loaves and two fish and he says, what are these among so many? See, this would be me, honestly, because I went to college <laughs> and I took a math course and... You've got 5,000 hungry people and five loaves and two fish. And frankly, if you were as sophisticated as I am, and if you understood the deeper sociological roots of the situation, you'd see there's really nothing for us to do but to, to sit in the paralysis of despair. <laughs> but what does Jesus say? He simply says, well, give it to me. What do you have? will you give it to me? And in that moment, Jesus proceeds to take responsibility for the miracle and then feeds 5,000 people to overflowing. You see, he wasn't asking the disciples to do the miracle. He didn't ask the disciples, well, do you have enough? He just asked, will you give me what you have so that I can do the miracle? Do you know that Kumar is actually not a slave in a brick factory anymore. Our local team of IJM lawyers were able to investigate his case, uh, mobilize a police raid on that facility and rescue Kumar and all 70 of those slaves out of that place. We were able to get Kumar enrolled in school and the other families enrolled in economic rehabilitation programs where they've been thriving for a number of years now. And now actually Kumar is not only doing well in school, he actually works as an intern with International Justice Mission and has helped us bring rescue to hundreds and hundreds of other slaves in that community. And because, you know, for Kumar, it has become believable that God is good because he saw the body of Christ show up for him. Amen. And likewise... Alina no longer has to just tremble in total fear and despair about the abuse in her community. Our local Filipino investigators and lawyers and social workers took on her case. We were able to not only get that police uh, chief fired, but he is now serving a life sentence for that uh, assault. And what that does, amen, amen, is that begins to change the calculation in that whole community about what the powerful can get away with when it comes to these little girls. Not only that, but Alina is pursuing a degree in college. And over these years, she's actually been part of our program that mentors other girls on how to walk through the process of healing and restoration and justice. And she has a testimony for all of these girls about the goodness of God because she's seen it. And likewise for Jyoti, she's no longer being serially raped inside this brothel anymore. Our undercover investigators were able to find her, mobilize our local police contacts, get her out, get her to a place of Christian aftercare where she's been able to come to know Jesus as her personal Savior. In fact, she was so transformed by all of that that she came to us and she said, you know, I know where there's other girls. 
And Joe T. led us on a second police raid to rescue seven more girls who were being held in horrific forced prostitution. And one of those was a girl named Kalini. And she actually said, well, you know what? I know where there are even more girls. And she led us on a third police raid. And she took us to an underground dungeon underneath one of these brothels. And on this day, we were able to bring out 24 of these girls who were held in a place of unspeakable abuse. And on this day, however, they came out of the darkness and into the light. Why? Because the body of Christ just showed up for Jyoti. And Jyoti showed up for Kalindi. And Kalindi showed up for these girls. And now it's believable to them that God is good. Because the light of the gospel goes to the darkest places. If you think, if you think for just a moment about that story of the feeding of the 5,000, I mean, why did Jesus do it the way that he did? Right? Do you ever think about this? Because there's all these hungry people, and he's God, right? I don't know. So why doesn't he just dump manna on everybody, right? Poof, manna, eat up, and we'll get back to the teaching, you know? I mean, why did he do it the way that he did? I think he did it the way that he did for just one reason. I think he wanted to give one little boy a very cool day. <laughs> right? Because he goes back home to his mom who packs the lunch, right? Says, Mom, guess what Jesus did with my lunch today? He fed 5,000 people. <laughs> Do we imagine that that little boy will ever in his life forget that day? And yet what a... And did Jesus actually have to have the lunch in order to do the miracle? Or did he maybe just love that little boy so much he just wanted to say, wait, wait, wait. Watch what I can do with your lunch today. What does all this mean for us? I think it suggests maybe just a couple of concrete things. Number one, perhaps a season of rediscovering God's passion for justice in the scriptures. And then secondly, beginning to offer back to Jesus what he's given us so that others can know God's goodness and freedom. We want to make that very, very concrete today. Give you a couple ideas of things that you have that you may not know that you have that could be offered for people who are in very dark places today. One of the things that you absolutely do have is influence. You know, right now in Washington, D.C., there's a piece of legislation going through the the Congress It's called the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, and it's the act that allows the U.S. government to partner with countries in the developing world, and it really has been enormously effective in helping them fight slavery and sex trafficking of children. And so when we go and talk about this with members of Congress, they say, yeah, this is really important, but it's a terrible problem, but it's not what people back home who actually vote care about. And we try to say, no, 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 they totally do. And so what we have is just a simple postcard inside your bulletin today. And if you want to pull that out and and have a look at it, it's a simple way for you to just have a message sent to uh, your two senators, Senator Boxer and Senator Feinstein. If you fill this out, what we'll do, it's a simple postcard that says, yeah, we got your back. If you want to support 
efforts of, of the U.S. government to actually support this fight, we will be part of it with you. Take the 15 seconds to fill that out. Put it in the usher uh, plates or out at the resource table as you go. But it will just be your way to say, yes, my influence, as, as far as it concerns me, I want you to know that followers of Jesus care about these things and want us to use our influence and power on behalf of those who are weak. There's also a way here to stay in touch with IJM and some of the work that we're doing together. And if you want to stay connected to that, just go ahead and uh, indicate that. But all of us have influence, and it can be as simple as that. The other is just to begin to equip our minds with the promises of God about how he wants to use us in the work of justice. We have a number of resources. We have books. We have other things that you can get a hold of to share with your small group, with your Bible study, your community group. So that you can start to find, oh, not only does God care about this stuff and want to use us, but he actually promises to bring his power to bear so that we can actually make a difference in the world. Let's not go through our life of Christian devotion without understanding God's passion for justice and how he wants to use us. So go to the resource table and take advantage of some of the things available to you there. But finally, here's just the point. We don't want to miss out on the invitation, right? Because if you think about it, why, why has God, in a world of so much suffering and hurt and need, why has God given us so much? Have you ever thought about this? I mean, why them? Why me? Well, by way of an answer, I confess that when I was growing up, I always wanted to be a really great football player. And sadly, I turned out to be like not such a good football player. But fortunately, I had two older brothers who would sit me down and they would explain to me why I was a bad football player. <laughs> and they'd say, well, Gary, see, you're small, but you're slow. And that was helpful in an odd way to me. And so what I would do is, of course, I would go to the weight room and try to work out, right? Try to just get bigger and stronger just so I wouldn't get crushed so badly on the football field. And I'd be working out in the gym and nothing would happen to my body. But I'd be, I'd be working out and I'd, and I'd always look over. And there in their special section of the gym were always the bodybuilders. <laughs> right? Have you seen these guys? I mean, just huge, right? Like huge chest and neck and arms and legs. I used to just look at all that muscle mass, right? all that strength and all that power. And I used to just ask, but what's it all for? It's for posing. <laughs> and the only time that strength is ever really brought to bear is there's, there's a crisis in the kitchen, right? And the jam jar is stuck in a... Pop up in a jam jar. <laughs> My prayer for us and for Cornerstone Church is that God will not leave us opening jam jars, but he'll rescue us from all things of fear, rescue us from all things that are just too small, and lead us with courage into a world that's yearning to see the goodness of God through us. We pray with me. Kind Father, thank you for the gentleness and patience with which you allow us to know you more deeply. Father, we don't want to walk out of this place just exactly the same people who came in. 
So we pray in the name of your son, Jesus, that you would take some word of truth that is from you this morning and allow it to change us so that we can live with courage and strength and freedom, freedom to love and to make you known in the world. We pray all these things, Lord, in the name of your son, Jesus, our Savior. Amen.